great to have the opportunity to come back and look at Daniel's prophecy. We have been a while since we've been in this book, so we get to jump back in. We are in Daniel chapter 3, and just an incredible section. You remember this, of course, from Sunday school. You have heard the story of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and now we get the privilege of looking at it together tonight. The question on our hearts and minds would be this, what does a life of faith look like? What does it look like to take a stand in faith in difficult times? We won't see a lot of examples today of great faith. It's not necessarily because they're not happening. They could be happening all around. It's just that our world does not value them. Our world doesn't value the examples of faith. In fact, our world ridicules the godly. They ridicule those with faith. It's not popular to stand on convictions. It's not popular to stand in faith in God. It's not popular to proclaim the Bible message. And so if there is anybody who is taking a stand, they're not prominent for the most part. Every once in a while, historically, God will raise up an individual or two. But for the most part, it's the day-to-day battles, it's the private demonstrations of faithfulness, it's those behind the scenes that are demonstrated as faithful to God. And this is, at this time in human history, God's design, that if the populace will not come to him, he will still raise up some who will come and give him honor and praise and adoration. God will receive his glory, and right now the choir might be few in number. On the other side of glory, the choir will be all of heaven and earth. Those who are coming willfully to give honor to the glory of God and those who by compulsion are forced to bow the knee and recognize the greatness of the glory of the King of heaven, that will come. That is Daniel chapter 3. Two high points in the chapter. The high point, first of all, comes in verse uh, 17 and 18, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego give glory to God in heaven. And then the second comes at the end of chapter 3, in verses 28 and 29, where even Nebuchadnezzar must do the same, give glory to the King of heaven. It's interesting that we tend to think on an earthly perspective the only way we can give glory to God is if we're in some kind of prominent role. If we are in a particular role that uh, would be useful to God, he would choose to use that to give him glory. But the reality is that God would find glory from any member. That he may even use those who are on the sidelines to bring him glory. The... uh, unsuspecting heroes, the supporting staff, the backup QBs, the people who are the servants, the least of all. These would be the ones that he uses to bring himself glory and honor when everyone else would be looking for something different. 
God demonstrating again and again that he uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He continues to demonstrate that he doesn't need anyone mighty and glorious to bring him glory. He can even use just the faithful and obscure one. I believe that is exactly what is happening in this particular text. Daniel is not in the picture. Daniel is not mentioned at all. Daniel has gone somewhere else, and on the now to the forefront of the picture are Daniel's friends. These are the ones that God is going to use to, to take these servants and demonstrate the riches of his power through their faith, which is bold, which is confident, which, of course, then proves the riches and the glories of God as God puts himself on display because of their great faith. I've thought through this many times that God's working in this. Because we, again, our temptation of our heart is to think, well, if I'm out of the spotlight, then I can't be useful. If I'm not the prominent one, if I'm not the Daniel in the group, then I can't really be useful to God. And yet God regularly takes the obscure and the weak and the outcasts and demonstrates the riches of his grace in there because that is where his power is on display. I mean, just thinking about this over the last few years, you know, I graduated a seminary where there are thousands of graduates one graduate was called out during COVID to be thrown into jail, to be persecuted, and to be then prayed for and supported. Out of all the graduates, the Lord takes one and seeks to demonstrate the riches of his glory. That's what he does. He purposely raises up one so as to demonstrate what he can accomplish. It's not that others didn't preach regularly during that time. It's not that others didn't meet, but it's that God chose this one to demonstrate his glory. And that is what he is able to do. He is able, able to, at any moment in time, take one and call them out and use their faith as an example to bring him glory, and we simply need to be prepared for that. Will we be used? As I said, Daniel is not here but Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are. The three friends of Daniel. The Hebrew youths that we might have thought just rode on Daniel's coattails and were prompt, raised up to glory because of the greatness of Daniel. Actually, we see here in chapter 3, they had a powerful testimony of their own. We shouldn't be surprised. Chapter 2 indicated this for us when we were in chapter 2. It was Daniel going to his friends when the difficulty came and asking them, pray with me, let's entreat God together, let's figure out what the answer is to this dream. These were his regular support cast who helped him. They weren't weak at all. They were, in fact, very useful. In fact, they had genuine faith, they had a genuine devotion to God, a powerful devotion, and that devotion is manifested here in this chapter. Yes, they may not have been used in the same way as Daniel was used, but they had no less honor, no less glory, no less usefulness, and God received great glory through their testimony, as we're going to see in this marvelous text before us. Which the lesson for us is this. Get prepared at any moment, and the Lord may choose to use you. At any time, in any moment, he may take your great faith and call you to the front lines, and you may have to 
stand with the kind of boldness and conviction that was demonstrated in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice this text here. We're in Daniel 3 and verse 1. Daniel says this, or writes, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. In the Greek Septuagint, there is a marking that says that this was at the 18th year of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's not in the Hebrew manuscripts, it is in the Greek manuscripts which may have emphasized the understandings of the Greeks during that time, that that would have placed this right at the time of the the final destruction of Jerusalem. It's quite possible. We don't know. But if it occurred at that time, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would be about 30 years old at this time. If it occurred earlier, simply right after the events of Daniel chapter 2, the youths would have been in their early 20s. So somewhere in there is that range. Still young men, still young and having been deported out of Israel, still new in their role, they're called into account to give a stand. And in this, Nebuchadnezzar seeks to call together these youth and everybody else to demonstrate something. As the text indicates, he has this giant's image built. Clearly, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is going to demonstrate his glory to all the nations. He has already taken to mind the events in Daniel chapter 2 where he has been called by God the most glorious. He is the head of gold. And now he is going to demonstrate the riches of his glory so that everybody knows that he is the greatest. And he does it by demonstrating his unbridled power and authority. It's not only in creating this image, which is of great splendor, but it is who that he calls there that demonstrates his unbridled authority. So we'll see in a moment. This image is an image, as it says, of gold. Cubit itself, again, it says it was, it was uh, here a height of 60 cubits. A cubit is 18 inches. So this would make this statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Now, you might at this point be thinking in your mind of those Uh, pictures in Sunday school, where in Sunday school they have the perfect representation of a statue of Nebuchadnezzar standing there in perfect dimensions. Well, if you had a statue that was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and it was all an image of an individual, that would look more like Gumby than an actual person. So that it was quite likely in this, if we were to build a perfectly symmetrical image, it would have been something 90 feet tall and 22 feet wide. But this being 90 feet tall and only 9 feet wide, it was likely that the pedestal that it was set on was 54 feet up. And then on top of that, another 36 foot image. That would be then one of perfect scale, a four to one scale. 
So in this, there is this large statue, 90 feet set out there on a pedestal of 54 feet, of which then this 36-foot gold statue stood as particular honor to King Nebuchadnezzar. An act of hubris on his part, an act of which he would seek to have all authorities come and honor him, an act that demonstrated great wealth. I mean, when you have a statue that 90 feet tall made of gold, solid gold, incredible wealth, even if it was plated gold, which many argued for, still an impressive demonstration of wealth in this. I don't know about you, but I don't have 90 feet of gold hanging around in my house in any way. It's great hubris, great power, great demonstration of honor. And of course, there's good reason for Nebuchadnezzar to think this way because when he had that dream and he was worried about it and when he received it from Daniel that he was the head of gold, now he is a little built up. Notice what happens next in verse 2. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the judges and the magistrates and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Here again, Daniel places, it is Nebuchadnezzar who is calling this vent to order. It's Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll see later, who has the image built. It is Nebuchadnezzar who wants all the leaders to come. And in this case, he wants everyone in authority to come to him. This order of groups here moves from descending order of authority, the highest being the satraps and then moving down the ranks, the prefects and the governors and the counselors. It is everyone in position of ruling authority in Babylon was to come and be a part of this. What's surprising is that Daniel is nowhere to be found. And again, we don't know why. Could have been that Daniel had already demonstrated his loyalties or he just had a free pass altogether and privately he told Nebuchadnezzar, there's no way, buddy, I'm doing that. We don't know. But he's not there in this particular account. But all the rest of the authorities are there, and they must give an account. And this is typical of any despot, any particular ruler or tyrant. They want honor. They want praise. They want shows of dedication. You can see this even today, looking out at North Korea. Look at the demonstrations where they'll have all the people come and give them honor for their particular spot. That is exactly what happens here. In fact, it's... The president of China, Xi, will, uh, has taken the book of worship for their country and republished it with references to him in it so that he is directing songs to him and he is fulfilling uh, prophecies. All despots want honor and glory and loyalty. And this is the case demonstrated here in verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar is looking for dedication from all the people in the land that they would give him all glory and honor. Every authority is aligned to him. The focus is entirely on him and his glory. It's repeated. It's interesting. Verse 2 and verse 3 are repeated. Notice verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, and the treasurers, and the judges, and the magistrates, and all the rulers of the providences were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. 
And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the call went out to all the land, and the response is, everybody came. They all came. They're all there. It's kind of almost, in one sense, a bit of iron. Our shock is, from the writer's standpoint, he made the call, he, he invited them all, and they all came. Everybody is there, and they're all standing before this very image. The decree went forth, and now there's not a single authority. And now here's where you see the challenge. There's not a single person, a single authority that resists Nebuchadnezzar. They are all there. It's not a small group that says, you're out of your mind, king. It's not a small group saying, well, yeah, majority goes this way, but we're going to stand on this side. As if you can have a political party, one party for the king, one against. No, this is total loyalty to the king, total subjection. They are all there looking at this giant image. Now you see the king's royal edict in verses 4 through 6. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given. O peoples, nations, and men of every tongue, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire." There is the king's royal edict. And again, Daniel, in his account of this, draws the attention that Nebuchadnezzar is the driving force of all of this. This is his image. This is, he set it up. He has called you there. He has arranged the music. He is calling for the loyalties. And he is going to bring the severe consequence if you fail to keep it. It's interesting, at the end of verse 6, the kind of... uh, um, Department of Redundancy Department that is stated there, right? The furnace of blazing fire, I mean, emphatic. As if, in this case, uh, there's any other kind of furnace. You know, this is, again, this is going to be an intense persecution if you violated the king's edicts. So sad, it's a royal ceremony, a religious ceremony, Filled with all music. That's why the types of instruments, the various instruments of horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, magpipe, all kinds of music played. So as to make this an event, so something that you would want to be a part of, and this is something, again, that would be a glorious activity. Musical instruments had always been part of worship services, always part of large gatherings, all of, always part of gathering together the crowds and the masses. Music has always been a large part of that. It's here in verses, again, 4 through 7, that we see that this is more than just the, the political leaders of the day. This is, as verse 4 indicates, all the people's. Is commanded to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language. Basically, everyone within the realm of Nebuchadnezzar, which by the time, at that time, he was the dominant force in all the world. 
There, there were no other rivals to Nebuchadnezzar at this moment in time. He had conquered his enemies, having brought Egypt under control, having brought Assyria under control. He was then the major force. So they were to come and give honor to him in honor in such a way that is to demonstrate his glory. And they would get the very privilege of bringing him worship by falling down and honoring him. Notice verse 7. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. There was complete and total loyalty to the king. Of course, everybody knew Nebuchadnezzar meant business. He set it up, and again, notice at the end of verse 7, again Daniel puts out, Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. It's just over and over again, we know where the source is. Here's the authority here that is drawing this together. The one who created the image, the one whose brainchild this was, the one who called in the leaders, the one who set up the music, the one who set up the image. This is a coming conflict of this great authority who had the ability to pull this all together. It's demonstrating, again, the great significance of Nebuchadnezzar at this point. Because I can tell you, Biden pulls to something like this, not a lot of people are showing up. There are very few with the kind of authority that could pull together some, like, something like this and get a worldwide devotion. That's what's demonstrated in this particular case. There is a purpose and devotion from all the peoples, from the leaders on down to the individuals. All of that's important because of what comes next then. Verse 8 through verse 12. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Now the charge, verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, O king, have degraded, disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. These Chaldeans, these Political leaders, a particular group, it says, is mentioned, come and bring a charge while the whole world is bowing down to this image and giving glory to Nebuchadnezzar. Three young men said, not us. And they are called out. Verse 12 indicates there that these Jews, these Chaldeans who came in 
and brought charges. Actually, verse 8, when it says they came forward and brought charges, that is a unique Aramaic phrase which describes they came in eating them in pieces. This literal translation of it. They came in with this devouring morsel to consume these youths. They came with a tinge of vindication, a tinge of jealousy. They were here to destroy these three. They were enraged. Might have been a bit enraged because of the glory that they thought this event was. Why wouldn't these youths want to join us in this glorious opportunity? It could have been that they were jealous that these Jewish youths were promoted to a position of authority within the realm of Babylon, and they didn't deserve that, and so there was a tinge of jealousy there. Whatever the case was, they were concerned not only just exposing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they wanted to utterly destroy them. So they come with this pretense to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, you set up this glorious event with all of this marvelous music, with this wonderful opportunity to give you praise, and these youths disregarded you. Notice the king's response in verse 13 and following. It says this to the youths from 13 to 15. Nebuchadnezzar was in rage and anger, And he gave orders to bring Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? And again, notice, my gods and the ones that I've set up for you to worship. Verse 15, Now, if you're ready... At the moment, you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? This is the conflict. The king is, again, clearly orchestrating every event. He is clearly enraged that one would stand against his authority. This is the king's party. This is for the king's glory. And three youths dare stand against him. He is enraged and he is going to demand their loyalty to him. But there's a tinge of cooperation on Nebuchadnezzar's part. There's a, a tinge of fairness in verse 15, where he says, you're clearly out of your mind, but I'll give you a chance to do the right thing. By, we'll play the music again, we'll repeat the events, and you will then just show glory and honor and give worship where it's due to me. And if not, my rage is going to come. The king is orchestrating, and the king's heart is fully revealed at the end of verse 15 with the question, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? 
Clearly, he's forgotten chapter 2, the events. Clearly, he has forgotten what has taken place up to this point. He is consumed in his idolatry at this point. And in his mind, no one can be delivered from his power and authority. Not even these three insurrectionists. That is Nebuchadnezzar's mind. Now, I love the response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 16 through 18. And this kind of heads, helps us wrap up scene one of this significant event. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. And stop, stop right there. I just love that. We don't have to answer you. I mean, at this point, this has to be just the most utterly appalling thing that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar can be hearing. He's been planning this event for ages. I mean, I don't know about you, but if you sat around and planned how to build a 90-foot golden statue to yourself, that's not a thought that takes, you know, one afternoon. And to think, to get all the authorities together, and to get all the music together, and to get all the events together, and to get all the people together, and to get the royal edicts out there, to go through all of that exercise just to hear these three insurrectious, insurrectionists say, Ah, we don't need an answer. You, you don't even deserve an answer to the very question that you're asking right here. Presenting yourself as a God to be worshipped, you don't even deserve the response to the answer to the question that you've just asked. I love that. Notice why, because he goes on. If it be so... Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You can't make us do it. We believe in the God of gods, the Lord of lords. We believe in the God who rules over all. There's one true God, the God we worship, and we will never bow to you. That is unflinching courage in the midst of great difficulty. That right there by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is courage and faith. There is a confidence in God that surpasses the events that raises above the threats and says, no matter what the difficulties are, I'm going to trust in God. They put their faith in God. This is true courage because, again, as we said up to this point, all the known world at the time is there to give glory and honor to Nebuchadnezzar. All the known world at this time is bowing their knee and engaged in this worship. And these three young men are standing against it. And not only are they standing against it, when they're being questioned, they're turning the attention to God himself and saying, our God is the only one worthy of worship. 
Only he, only he will receive our honor. Only he will receive our dedication. While the multitudes and the crowds may give you glory, it's these three young men standing against the multitudes. These three voices prevailing against the wisdom of the world. It's three, these three voices against the great earthly authorities. These three voices against a sea of unbelief. Three small, insignificant, background characters God uses to say, here is where I receive glory and honor. That's significant. That God would even take the time to pay attention to those voices for himself. I mean, again, our hearts tend to think, well, if it isn't a big effort, it must be useful. It's not important. And yet, it's the small, the weak, the seemingly insignificant that God demonstrates the riches of his glory among. For everything they said was absolutely true. No reason to bow the knee to you, Nebuchadnezzar. There's only one we bow the knee to, and it's to God. And even if our God didn't rescue us, we will never bow our knee to you, for there's nothing that you do that is worthy of praise and adoration, for only one is worthy of praise, and that is God himself. It reminds me, and this is, again, the end of the first act to this, God will receive praise. I'm reminded of the words of Peter in 1 Peter 4, 17. When he says it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? God may call upon us to have to give an account first, and we will. Because on the back half, we see the second act to this. Notice the second act, and this is the humbling of God's enemies, starting in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expressions was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He put his trump face on. He distorted it in rebellion. Who are these three youths that would come and stand against me? I mean, if there's one thing a tyrant cannot tolerate, it is insurrection especially on a day that it was to be his day of glory. At this point in time, again, Nebuchadnezzar, as the text indicates, filled with rage. And, of course, you would expect that. And he declares there in the end of 19, he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated Basically, he is in full-on rage. Turn up that fire to match the intensity of my anger, is what Nebuchadnezzar is commanding. Verse 20, and he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. 
Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and they were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Verse 22, For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who had carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, this was, again, an impressive order. It is likely that this very furnace was used to melt the, the gold and make this very statue. It would have been right there near all the events, so they kept it out. And now this is the use, this very uh, oven, which would have been used to make the statue, is now going to be used to bring judgment upon these youth. And then they had the fire stoked up, and they had the men bound. And I think verse 22 is added there for our sake, that we understand that this was indeed a real significant fire. Even if it, because of the events we're about to see, it is significant to understand that this was a real impressive fire because it even burned up the soldiers who carried in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They died on the spot. Nebuchadnezzar is demonstrating his authority here, his anger, his rage, his immediate hot temper, his judgment, and it was, again, genuine. I think that's the key in understanding verse 22. This was not a Disneyland flame. It, was, it wasn't something like they threw him in the fire and they just overshot the fire and he landed on the other side. No, this was an impressive fire. It was large. It wasn't imaginary. And in fact, it did its work on the soldiers who were there. It's an impressive, intense flame. Kind of, again... Power that was running and raging. I remember seeing the power of fire once. I was at a church event. We had uh, had a church camp. This is the kind of church camp all used like to go to. And we were at this church camp, and at night we were going to set off a big bonfire, and then. After a while of singing around the fire, they were going to disperse the fire into little groups and have s'mores and things like that. So I was part of the setup crew for this fire. And the guy had cut down a few oak trees, and so he brought some oak trees that he had cut down. And they had come and they had built a pit. They actually had dug out a two-foot pit. Uh, and they stacked the wood into that pit, and it actually stacked up eight feet. So this was a 10-foot stack of wood, two feet underground, eight feet above ground, and it was this large pit. And of course, then you would ask the question, how in the world do you start a fire on a large pit of wood, oak tree, that's freshly cut down? Well, the answer is diesel fuel. Yeah, well, see, a lot of you know what I didn't know at the time. They had poured some diesel fuel on that, and I, as a city slicker, standing really close to it, thinking this is marvelous, and trying to get an idea of what's happening. And apparently, the fumes of the diesel fuel just kind of dropped down right into that two-foot pit that they had dug. But they were wise. They actually had dug a channel away from the fire, and they had poured some fuel out in that because they were going to light it at one end and let it go into the pit. 
And I'm standing there, having again come from the city, not having done anything, and I look around for the nearest redneck. And I watch him fleeing the other direction, and I figure at that point, that's the guy I'm going to follow. The guy who has some personal experience here, because I have no such experience at events like this. So I chase him down, and right at that time, they light the fire, and that flame goes. And then that flame kind of disappears into the pit. And then for just a moment, nothing's happening, and all of a sudden, this large explosion takes place. A 50-foot-pound log comes launching out and lands about six feet away from the pile. It was so loud that the camp director comes running from the other side of the camp to figure out what just happened. But I could tell you the fire started just right. At that moment, there is an impressive force in fire. That is just a roundabout way to say this was an intense fire here. There's intense fire able to consume, and it did its work here. It consumed the soldiers, and it should have consumed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they were delivered in an astonishing way. Notice the events from verse 23 through 27. It says, But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, and he stood up in haste, and he said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I see four loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of the blazing fire, and he responded, and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And then Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. Now verse 27, the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was their hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor, and here's even more significant, nor had the smell of the fire even come upon them. They were not burned, they were not touched, and even the smell of that fire had not touched them. No harm. Completely delivered. Completely rescued in this. It says there in that text that they looked in, saw this event, and there was one like the son of the gods. It says later in verse 28, the one who is called an angel could be a reference to Christ, a pre-incarnate reference, could be a messenger, an angel from God sent to deliver The point is to demonstrate this one was sent to show that it wasn't these men who delivered them. It was God who had delivered them. 
God delivered with God's power, with God's force, so that there was no question. It wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that brought about this deliverance. It was God himself from on high. Whether it was the incarnate Son of God, a pre-incarnate Son of God, that he came himself, or whether it was one of his messengers, an angel, it was still an act of the Most High to deliver these three youths. And to deliver them in such a way of complete deliverance. I mean, I like to barbecue, but one of the downsides of barbecuing is that you completely smell like smoke. It's in your hair, it's in your clothes, it's in your skin. You're not getting it off. Here, these three were completely delivered. Nothing remained. There was nothing, again, no earthly reason for their deliverance, no natural explanation. There was nothing that one could point to. That's what made them all in awe. To which we see then the second act of praise, the praise of the pagan king in verses 28 through 30. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. It's Nebuchadnezzar's own words. He knew exactly what was taking place. These youths, stood upon conviction, had courage and faith, and they stood against the masses, and they believed upon their God, and they wouldn't bow to any other source, even at the threat of death. Verse 29, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. What is absolutely amazing in this is that this is now the king who was looking for glory, who had worked towards this particular event to receive glory and honor and praise. The entire event is turned on its head in an instant by a demonstration of the power of God. It is God who receives honor. God receives glory from this one who was, again, looking for his own self-glory. Say it like this, God begins by bringing worship to himself through the faithful. He is going to end the whole scene by forcing all knees to bow to him, even the wicked king. This is what we know. In this event... The wickedness of Nebuchadnezzar is exposed. In this event, the weakness of Nebuchadnezzar's power has been exposed. The foolishness of Nebuchadnezzar's thinking has been exposed. And the greatness of God that is unmatched has been demonstrated. 
There is no other God like this God who is able to deliver. No one can deliver in this way. So I love to see in this text as we look through it. Yeah, there's the faith of the faithful, but even the rebellious king who is looking for personal glory and honor, even he is brought low. And that reminds me of the words that Paul has said about Jesus Christ when he describes of Christ that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. The mockers, the proud, the rebellious, the arrogant, the selfish, the God-haters, the insolent, the murderers, the adulterers, the falsely religious, the indifferent, the atheist, the agnostic, and every other one will bring their knee and bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And it may begin with us as we give him praise, but it will end with all who will have to give an account to the glories and the riches of God himself who has no rivals. I mean, I, again, I think of the utter shock that day with Nebuchadnezzar walking back home, replaying the events in his mind. Guarantee you he didn't see it going that way. He had in his mind, this was going to be the day that I would be lifted up and I would be honored and I would receive glory and everyone would come and this would be my grand entry into the great halls of history and all would see my glory and honor. After all, God had promised this and I'm going to receive my glory. And he left that day with his tail between his legs saying there's no other God like this God. I oftentimes wonder two things for us. Are we going to be prepared to give God praise even if we think we're small, insignificant, and unimportant because he just might call us to it? And if we ever thought on the other side that you're the proud and the haughty, do you recognize one day you're going to have to give an account? And either you're going to come willingly and receive the glory of God and praise from God, or you're going to come humbly because he is going to bring you low to demonstrate his greatness. May we be the kind of people who give God praise now so we can enjoy that great chorus in the heavens. Let's go before the Lord. Father, thank you for this marvelous example and the demonstration of your great power. What a glorious event. Thank you for the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their just commitment to you and their faith. Certainly these men of great renown who were bold to stand against the whole world at the time. And they stood in confidence and faith in you. And that you demonstrated the riches of your glory. And even now we know that you are capable at any moment to bring about a grand demonstration But we also reply like them, even if not, we will not bow the knee. Even if it is not your purposes, at this time we know the King of kings and the Lord of lords has his day and it is coming in which you will sit on your throne and take your rule. Until that time, may we be the kind of people that encourage one another on to love and good deeds, that we continue to stimulate one another on to godliness, rejoicing and anticipating this great day when your glory will be revealed. 
May we continue to see the riches of your grace from your word. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.